0: You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast.
1: Good evening, everyone. I'd like to start by respectfully acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we meet today, the Bunwurung and Woi people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to the elders, past, present and future, as well as those from other nations that might be present today. Welcome to M Talks Leadership and Women, presented by Collectivity Talks. I'm Emma Eldridge and I'll be moderating this evening. In my role as Senior Strategist at Communications Collective, I'm privileged to work on our Collectivity Talks series, bringing together industry leaders from different disciplines to explore themes shaping our world. We're particularly proud to partner with our client Empyvium on this event that expands on a theme informing the work of architect Carme Pinos, women and leadership. And what a panel we have this evening. First up we have Dale Fisher. Building Iconic Health Services is Dale's career ambition. Prior to joining the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre as CEO, she led the Royal Women's Hospital during its redevelopment and come December, she'll head up Silver Chain Group. Dale became a professor in the School of Public Health and Preventative Medicine at Monash University in 2016 and is an advocate for women's health rights. She was inducted into the Victorian Honour Roll in 2011 and named on the Australian Financial Review's 100 Women of Influence in 2013. Dale sits on the boards of the Victorian Comprehensive Cancer Centre, the Committee for Melbourne and St Michael's Grammar School. Thank you for coming, Dale. Next up, we have Prue Gilbert. Prue is a lawyer, human rights advocate and mother empowering working parents across Australia. She co-founded Grace Papers to challenge traditional stereotypes and empower working parents and employers, winning an Australian Human Rights Business Award for this work in 2014. Prue is a Fellow of the Governance Institute of Australia, volunteers for the Legal Steering Committee of Now Australia and has been an influencer in driving gender equity through her role as an advisory board member for the AFL Players Association for the Women's League. She's one of this year's Australian Financial Review 100 Women of Influence as is our next speaker, Div Palay. What an incredible group tonight. Div is a Champion of Diversity and Inclusion She's CEO and co-founder of Mind Tribes and Culturally Diverse Workforces. Um, through this work, she works with executives, employees, offshore teams, and customers to ensure brands extract the business benefits of diversity, affecting trade with corporates such as American Express, ANZ, Lion, NAB, and Telstra. Mind Tribes donates 10% of its revenue to Plan International each year, and Div sits on the board of Hospitality Social Enterprise Street. And finally, we're lucky to have Lydia Thorpe with us this evening. A Gunai Gundidjmara woman, Lydia is the Green member, Greens Member sorry, of the Legislative Assembly for Northcote. A lifelong public education advocate, she received the Fellowship for Indigenous Leadership Award in 2008 and was later appointed to the Bairnsdale Regional Health Board and Lake Tyres Aboriginal Trust. She served as the chairperson of the Victorian NIDOC Committee, and honorary CEO of the Victorian Traditional Land Owner Justice Group, and was founding member of the First Nations Sports Foundation and inaugural member of the First Nations Renewable Energy Alliance. (laughs) They're all incredible. (laughs) So thank you all for joining us this evening. Now, when I first mentioned that I'd be moderating this panel, quite a few of my friends questioned why it was even necessary, why gender should be part of a discussion on leadership in 2018. But research recently undertaken by the Harvard Business Review found when asked to picture a leader, most of us still conjure a man. And we use more positive words for male and negative ones for female leaders. Despite appreciating traits like compassion, we're more likely to associate with women. So my question to you ladies, first question, is are women able to escape the widely held societal beliefs around gender and leadership to just be leaders Or is the title of female leader one to brandish with pride? How do you see yourselves? Dale, let's start with you. (laughs) Thanks
2: very much. Look, I... Can you hear me? Yes. Um, I'm a strong believer that there does need to be a gender lens uh, on leadership uh, until we get equality, and we are not at that point. And so, um, I ensure in the organisations that I lead, where my sphere of influence um, is greater, that there is a gender lens um, on any decision that is made. And um, in order to get equality, you've got to treat some groups unequally. I also uh, practice um, feminism, feminism in feminist leadership, which uh, when I first went to the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre... Um, I used. Uh, I talked about this with the first uh, meeting with the senior medical staff and it went out in the tweet, the new CEO used the F word. <laughs> and I thought, oh, well, that was a good start, but it was actually the word feminist. Um, but uh, I'm very, very pleased with the results um, of that organisation and I'd like to see a greater impact um, on that. But uh, there is a huge, huge... Um, unconscious bias on this issue, on many issues. And I think it's everyone's responsibility to, to highlight that. And, um, and I'm, you know, proud feminist. I'm married to a feminist. Um, he's a male. Um, but uh, it's really important that we have that uh, gender lens on leadership and I'd practice that as well. What do you think, Prue? Yeah,
3: I, look, I agree with Dale and um, I'd probably add to it by saying I think it's an opportunity to differentiate yourself as a female leader Um, And certainly one of the things that we advocate for at Grace Papers is dismantling this command and control style structure of leadership. Um, ...which doesn't actually bring out the best in everybody um, or explore the potential of everyone. And it's really why we are so passionate about uh, this concept of grace. You know, what does it actually look like to lead with grace? Um, And grace is a word that really does mean, you know, gift and exploring one's potential... ...and really, we believe, has the capacity to bridge that gap between that command and control style of leadership... Um, and a far more collaborative style that is inclusive um, and explores the potential of every human.
1: What about you two?
4: Um I agree absolutely with the gender lens, so that that is for sure. Um, and I think for... If I speak for culturally diverse women, so uh, women of colour, that has a double whammy in terms of gender and culture and perceived age. So I've had a number of comments tonight of oh, you're a mum of three and your eldest is 16. So I had a lot of people go, that's pretty young. And often I get the pretty young equating to potentially less experienced or less competent. Um, So we've got sort of three barriers to cut through um, in our bias. Uh, In terms of whether um, I would like to be regarded uh, just for being a leader as opposed to just... Uh, being a female leader, um, I think it depends on which context I'm in. Um, As a CEO driving our business forward, um, I definitely do leadership quite differently. Uh, So I think I do bring some of those, um, that grace, (laughs) sometimes under fire, um, to the situation. So I definitely think I do lead differently, but I do want equality. Um, And I absolutely agree with Dale that we're not there yet, so it is an equity uh, discussion. Um, so I I'm, 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 I'm want to be treated equally as a leader regardless of my gender, but I recognise that we're not there yet. I, I suffer the three Rami bias, so I've got to traverse that. Um, but what I will say, which was very interesting, we ran a um, study with the University of Melbourne and we just launched the paper in September. And we interviewed 20 successful, culturally diverse women, so women on boards, so on the boards of JB Hi-Fi, Peter Alexander, um, et cetera, so very, very successful women. And we also surveyed 40 Australian um, Anglo-Celtic men, many of them with the name Andrew or James or John. (laughs) And it really is true. We didn't go after those names, but we ended up with them. So, all right then. and what was interesting, we asked these gentlemen, um, "What do you need from leaders?" And they said, um, "Strategic, technical ability, those sorts of things." And and they rated the words charisma and gravitas as only five percent of what they require in a leader. And then cheekily down the way in the survey, we asked them, "What do you think culturally diverse women need to develop?" And they picked, 60% of them picked charisma and gravitas. And I was really quite surprised. And I'm like, what is that exactly? And that's that male lens of those words, charisma and gravitas. Because it means different things to very different people. And uh, I'm interested to hear you later of what the response has been to the word grace. Um, So, that's very interesting. So, I, I find the response is still there in terms of the need for male dominated leadership language. um, And that just makes this equity quite hard to move. But I reckon that all of us here are on the same page. I doubt that anyone in the audience is actually not fighting for that equity. So, um, yeah, I think that's- And
1: Lydia, what about you? I was pretty impressed um, to hear Karen Phelps on the weekend say, talk about compassionate leadership, that she wanted to return to compassionate politics and compassionate leadership. How do you feel about that as a female politician today in Australia's political landscape?
0: Um, well, that's how I came in and that's how I'll maintain who I am with integrity and as an Aboriginal woman, um, but it's certainly not it's not what I've seen in the past 11 months of being a politician, so things need to change. Um, but coming from a strong uh, matriarchal line of, you know, thousands of generations, um, You know, we lived in a society of of equality and no one was ever – there was never any hierarchy in our society. So, women are actually treated um, quite well in in our society and and we are the leaders in our community and the men basically just follow with what what we do – and that's a f- that's how I've been raised, and um, the men just wait for our signal, and and they're part of what we do. Um, so, and coming from a party um, with you know seven women and one man, um, gender equality isn't a problem for us. Um, but certainly in the political sphere, from what um, I've experienced in the past 11 months. Um, Yeah, women, particularly um, women of colour, are treated very differently in that parliament um, in Spring Street and we are, um, especially me, I I think coming in new, coming in new as a green, coming in as an Aboriginal woman is treated um, differently again and I'm treated like I'm, you know, come in with my training wheels and how Aboriginal people have been treated in this country um, since invasion. So that plays out in the parliament uh, and that's why I've um, openly said, you know, that I don't feel safe at home in parliament. It's not a safe working environment for me um, as a single woman, as an Aboriginal woman. So um, inequality in parliament exists and we need more strong women um, running for office to change the face of parliament.
1: I think we were all reminded um, of that in the kind of media reels last night of um, Julia Gillard with her portrait and Tony Abbott kind of just standing there watching her like a hawk. It was just like that ultimate kind of kind of victim and bully kind of scenario played out. It was, it was quite shocking and I think everyone kind of is aware of it in Australia now with obviously the misogyny speech, Me Too, etc. but we've got a very long way to go. But how
2: amazing was the applause for Julia yes. on the um, – on Monday in the <coughs> Royal Commission into, you know, um, yeah. sex abuse in, in our institutions. And so, you know, some issues do cut through yeah. and yeah. Um, I think that was a wonderful moment.
1: Yeah, I think yeah. so too. So, yeah, on talking about, you know, politics, we're talking about power, kind of leads into the next question um, – It was 50 years ago. I wonder if you'll think that much has changed. Um, Gloria Steinem published a story entitled Women in Power for New York Magazine. And she actually had to convince her male editors that women wanted power and that they wanted to lead. Strange. (laughs) She wrote, a lot of men and a surprising number of women believe the sexually segregationist argument that women aren't interested in power at all. That something in their genes makes them prefer to be ordered about. Right. So, reflecting on recent events, um, do you consider very much has changed in the last 50 years? You know, did you experience many roadblocks on your way up the leadership ladder? Yeah, maybe we'll start with you, Div. Um, I
4: love power. <laughs> so,
1: <laughs> <laughs> I do
4: love it in every sphere of my life. I do love it. So, um, I probably wa- wasn't the ideal choice of daughter-in-law for my mother-in-law, <laughs> um, coming from an Indian background, Indian heritage. Um, and, I, and 19 years of marriage almost, and I still get the kind of questionable decision from my mother-in-law as to, oh, she's still the right chick for you. Uh, so, <laughs> I think I'll never um, get rid of that uh, because I'm outspoken and I am Good. different um, and I speak my mind all of the time um, and I do like the power that comes with that um, and I've in my business world have been sort of subtly complimented or not so for being sort of non-traditional Indian so I get like oh you're not really like many Indian women and I'm going, oh what is that like what what are, what a what traditional woman Indian woman sound like, look like. So I do I do like the power and I um, go after it. But in saying that, I, I make a joke of the, the Indian cultural heritage, but uh, it has been something quite personal to be able to aspire to have the power and then lead with power and still traverse that social, cultural norms of what it is to be a woman with power. Um, and I've had to break many um, cultural ceilings first before... I broke gender ones um, and social ones to get where I needed to be. Um, the the good thing is that um, I'm powerful with the way that I we lead our marriage as well. So my husband left his job um, from Ernst and Young as a director to join me in the business, um, and that is just like a no-no in an Indian cultural background. Um, you know, and he still gets the jokes of the fact that he's joined his wife and how is it working for the, you know, the boss who's the wife. Um, so that's hard, um, but I would say that um, leading with power takes a lot of internal reflection uh, and an internal compass that you constantly have to review and recheck yourself against because it's not easy um, as well uh, to deal with the bias that exists and still be a, a powerful woman in every sphere of your life. Uh, but I don't regret it, so I don't regret speaking my mind or um, leading my life with power and control and clarity, um, because um, we've just we've all got one life to lead, and I I think you should do what you think is the most powerful for you to do, um, and I think I, 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 I we rear our children the same, uh, and it isn't always easy. So I think I'd, I'd give that personal reflection of it's an easy decision maybe to to, to say that you want to be powerful and lead with power, but it, it is, for me, at least personally, quite a struggle um, internally to figure out what I will do, what I won't do, and um, even on social media, you know, the commentary and things like that, I came out quite strongly with um, Pauline Hansen's motion of, you know, people feeling ill because they were white racists. So that was... And I got slammed in social media quite hard uh, for taking a position on it. But I'll pick myself up and dust myself up and be more powerful in my language anyway. Um, but it is hard. It's not easy, I would say.
1: And Lydia, how do you feel um, as a politician? Why is it and in society today? People still, like 50s on, people still have this kind of strange feeling about women... ...wanting to have power to affect change, to have an impact. Um, obviously in Australia we, we do have a problem with um, women politicians... ...women in power. Like, why do you think that that kind of ingrained societal belief... ...is proving so difficult to move?
0: Uh, I think because we we're invaded by old white men... ...and old white men have been what Parliament has looked like for so long... That people are just used to looking at old white men making decisions for our country, and the wrong decisions by everybody. So you know we need to show people that um, it can be different, and that um, when you put your trust in people like Northgate put their trust in me, that you know we we are we can make better decisions for our communities, and that we we come with a breadth of experience and knowledge and and cultural background background that everyone um, will benefit from and and just you know the leadership getting here it's it's also about um, in our communities in our culture um, because hierarchy isn't a thing uh, when you do put yourself out there you know leadership isn't a a great word for us so when you do put yourself out there there's a lot of people quick to pull you down Um, so you're fighting you know not only against the other parties but you're fighting against sometimes your own communities that um, don't want you up there, to, you know, being a leader. Um, so, it, it is a, you know, it is a struggle and um, you need other strong women around you and men that um, believe in in the same thing you do to be able to give you that strength to keep going and luckily I come from a community that does that. And a family.
1: And, Dale, you said that your husband's a feminist Mm -hmm. and you're very lucky to be supported by men that don't have an issue with women in power. I guess in your experience, have you had a lot of roadblocks when you were kind of working your way up the ladder, you know, people having those issues with a woman in power, a woman leader?
2: I don't think it was such a gender issue as me. It was also mainly an attitude until I, you know, um, power does make the world go round. It's about our social business um, structures and our personal. And I would encourage every person, particularly young people, to understand power and how it really works. Because, again, there is a stereotypical view of power that is bad. It's not a bad word. In my role as a CEO, I learned to use legitimate power very sparingly. What I did learn is to unleash the power of the people in the organisation and also the power of the community voice, um, which Lydia would know in particular. And I think that politicians and, um, you know, underestimate the Australian community in particular and look at the yes vote again, um, what happened there for um, same-sex marriage. And so um, yes there was uh, I had plenty of roadblocks but my workarounds, um, not only did I go to university to understand the theory of things like power, but I actually practiced, experimented, did workarounds and learned and relearned um, you know to do my workarounds and also so it powers a very, very interesting you know um, area uh, for, for t- to look at and, um, and individually, to use power um, in the right way to get outcomes that benefit um, the community and also, you know, the power to improve yourself to make an impact in, our, in people's lives.
1: And it kind of comes back to what you were talking about before, Prue, about grace and a kind of what, what Dale's saying is, yes, personal power, but it's almost empowering your, the people in your organisation, empowering the community. And it's kind of that grace versus gravitas, what was talking about before so in your work when you're trying to empower working parents you know as a working mum myself you do come up with a lot of people having a say like you know I'm obviously not a leader but people do have a lot to say thank you yes you are are. (laughs) Um, but you know there's a a lot of commentary Um, you know what do you what's your advice for you know working mums working parents who ...are uh, in those kind of leadership track and coming up against, you know, family views... ...societal views, organisational views, etc. cetera?
3: Sorry. <laughs> Where do I start? Um, I, to go back to the very first part of that question... Um, ...I had my own personal experience, negative experience with power... Um, ...used against me in such a negative way um, from a sexual harassment perspective as a young lawyer... Um, in a law firm and um, ended up being performance managed out of the organization. So I learned very quickly the impact of, um, of poorly utilized power and control. Um, and I guess I, I like to think about and support other women, particularly as they're navigating that career trajectory to understand their sources of power. Um, ...and how they use those sources of power to influence others. Um, And when you can have that self-awareness connected to a vision... um, ...and that clarity of where you want to go... ...when you can actually unpack um, and understand the different biases... ...conscious and unconscious of all of your potential stakeholders... ...you know, both in the workplace but also in your personal life... um, then you can actually also uh, set about growing through all of those and using those sources of power um, which are usually connected back to your core strengths experiences, you know, life experiences. I think my life, you know, the sexual harassment experience I had is possibly one of um, my greatest strengths now as well in understanding um, power uh,
1: and being able to use it with grace. Okay, so next question. Um, Founding partner of Forerunner Ventures, Kristen Green, had the following to say on board membership. You're all on board, so I thought this one might be interesting for you. There was a time when I'd get invited by someone who'd say, we're serving female customers, 85% of our transactions are driven by women and we're all dudes. We need to have a women's voice in the room. She went on to say... I spent a bunch of time being mad about that, thinking, geez, what about suggesting I'm somebody who really understands this business, who can offer a smart analytical perspective of what's going on. But then I realized, who cares what gets you a seat at the table? My job was to make sure they wanted me to stay on their board because I added value to the conversation. So as I said, you all sit on boards and have maybe experienced something like this, a bit of token female board member. Have you ever felt like you've had to prove your worth and once you finally got comfortable in that board position, have you felt a responsibility to open the doors for other women? I'll start with you, Dale. Uh, Well, yes, um, helping other women.
2: I also – I'll be interested in the panel's view on this. Um, Diversity on boards includes women, right? I think it should be equity in gender and diversity, that the gender should not be inclusive because it's shutting the door to to get. So, um, I can't um, convince the AICD about this, but um, I'll keep going. Um, So, so yes, I think that we have a huge responsibility. I think um, the person talking uh, about, uh, you know, she's still talking about herself, not the value she's going to bring to the board. So, I think she's a bit skewed, you know, on all of that. and um, look, I think, you know, in order to get the governance structures correct, you have to have diversity um, and um, uh, equity on our board.
1: And is that – do you think that in necessitates quotas?
2: Yes, absolutely. <laughs>
3: yes.
1: Oh, <laughs> unanimous. Okay.
5: <laughs> uh,
3: yeah, that's an easy one. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I, I think um, also understanding what you bring to that board – um, ...and your role on that board is really important. And I take the example of the AFL Players Association advisory committee board that I sit on. Um, and I, I suspect my role initially from their perspective was to be the token woman. Um, and, you know, so that it looked from the outside like they actually were doing the right Ticks. thing. Um, they probably underestimated what they were getting in some ways but I was fairly clear on what my objectives were and I would say it has been a fight um, and so I think it, you know sometimes you use your influence and sources of power to get there and other times actually it you have to go harder um, and and be more more vocal um, and use your expertise as well uh, to shift the conversation, because certainly in that space there has been a significant education piece that was required, um, not uh, just for the AFL, um, not just for the AFL Players Association um, committees, uh, but for the female players as well. Um, so it's been quite a you know a really interesting role to to be part of. Um, but I've certainly felt like you know, they see me coming or I'll ring and say, oh, I think I'd better come in and have a chat with you on this one and I can feel them going, oh, you know, <laughs> here she comes. <laughs> so, um, yeah, you know, and you just have, have to, to wear be resilience. <laughs> yeah, you do and know why you're going in there and go prepared.
1: Yeah, taking the long view. <laughs> what but about I, you, I do have, you, Sorry, can I? Yeah, I, yeah, I can have, have
2: fun calling on the bad behaviour <laughs> now because, as I say, my future's behind me. Yeah. So it really I it, it's really quite liberating. And so, you know, calling it at at the table is um and it's and, and it is quite powerful as well. It, very politely of course. <laughs> Respectfully.
3: <laughs>
0: um
4: Well my board role is at Street, which is um working with youth homelessness and uh there are about twenty six thousand um young people uh, who are homeless aged between 12 and 24. Um, And our board is very um, inclusive and very heart focused. Um, And I actually had been watching the work that Street had been doing for the last nine years and knew that with the demographics changing that um, that would change in the youth homelessness area as well. So I actually approached them for the board role. Um, there's 25% of young people are coming from an asylum seeker, refugee and migrant background. Um, So I um, played to my strengths in there and said, I think you need me. (laughs) Um, And here's why. So I'm very business case approached as to how I can see the value that I bring that will extend their growth. Um, And absolutely, it's um, more than what they bargained for. So, they they were very accepting and inclusive of me because they absolutely saw the business case with the demographics. Uh, But I wasn't so interested in working at the heart of the youth homelessness from a practical perspective. I was more interested in looking at whether I could commercially add to the growth of streets business so that they could do more social good that was my angle um so whereas they may have been thinking oh I'm very close to this issue I can probably be a spokesperson or probably can give them ideas on how to connect more with cald people I can but I can do also more than that um so that's my purpose there and I created the value very quickly I am the challenger in the group because half the board um are employed by street, so I feel that they are innately biased. Um, So I do also feel that uh, coming there, you know, I'm the one on the agenda who said, why are we talking about the commercials and the financials towards the end of the board meeting? (laughs) Because we talk about all these beautiful things that we're gonna do for youth, and then we go, oh, oops, we can't fund them. Uh, What are we doing? So I went, commercials first, We talk about that first and we talk about uh, whether we can stay steady with our feet on the ground and then we can talk about what we do with it. Um, So I'm very um, clear about um, encouraging other diverse people to put their hands up and lean in for boards because I sat quietly, I went to women on boards, I sat through all their courses um, and I followed all the rules of how you should go about securing a board position. And then I just did the opposite. <laughs> I just did the opposite. You're
1: just an overarching challenger, aren't you, dear? I just went, oh, you're <laughs> not, not working. No, I'm, I'm a bit of a problem
4: solver, so if it's not working, I go, oh, well, I'll try something different. I'll create another another option. So um, I'm constantly challenging the diverse women that we work with. We have about 150 uh, with us who we select. Um, and they are their next aspiration is board roles. And they then go through the cookie cutter of all the institutions that say this is how you should secure a board role Um, and we say, well, yeah, you can learn from that but then also think practically what's going to work to get you in Uh, and often we find that it's the business case and an advocate uh, inside the board that gets the door open. So, uh, if any of you are looking for board roles, there's a cookie cutter way and then there's the alternate way. Always look at both. (laughs)
1: Lydia, you've actually worked in, well, been on a lot of quite senior level organisations from quite a younger age as well um I mean how did you get on how do you get on a board like how how did you get into those positions and how did you kind of continue up that leadership track to where you are now
0: uh, I have to yeah agree with my sister Dee here and I think you know I've always I'm been cool already brand... <laughs> <laughs> you say it so eloquently though um I've just been called a troublemaker all my life Um, ..and that is because I question things. um, And even, you know, I have been on a lot of Aboriginal boards... ..where I question things. um, And when you continually are branded as a troublemaker... ..you kind of just get that label. And now I can go back to people and say... ..well, actually, look what being a troublemaker has landed me. Look where it's landed me. Um, And it's given people a different, you know, look... ..outlook, I suppose, on... You know, yes, she has questioned things for so long. She's stood up for what she's believed in. She's stood up for, you know, the principles of self-determination and everything that we've been fighting for. I've maintained that stance. I've never um, given way. Even with the Greens, I don't give way. And in Parliament, I don't give way. So, I don't care in what environment I'm in. I don't give way to the values that that have been instilled in me. And... um, and I feel that I I do have a responsibility to um, bring other women with me, and so I've you know I've been in positions of influence where I've created um, the, I've created workshops around the state um, called speaking out, you know, and just having informal yarns with women of all ages, Aboriginal women, on why it's important that we have to speak out and we have to get in places of influence to. ...to change the, you know, the situation that our people are in in this country. And it's only, I believe, it's only the women that are going to do it... ...because we're the ones that look after the family. We're the ones that lead the community. And we're the ones that are going to make the right decisions for our people. So, that's the stance that I've begun with... ...and that's the stance that I'll continue to have. Kind of leads into our um, penultimate
1: question... Um, Katrin Jakobsdottir, Iceland's second female Prime Minister, does preside over the world's most gender-balanced legislature and has worked very hard to implement the most stringent pay equity laws. When she was asked what other countries might learn from the Icelandic example, she said, sometimes you need radical action to get results. There will always be pushback saying change will come in due time, but history has shown us it doesn't come by itself. So, a recent report suggests it'll take around 80 years to reach gender equity in Australian workplaces. What kind of radical action do we need? Start with you, Pro. Well, I think the
3: idea that it'll take 80 years, or I think the Global Economic Forum said 217 at one stage, is just absolutely absurd. And I think at the moment, um, the world's listening in many ways and we're seeing that symbolically taking place, you know, I think um, the fact that the tampon tax was changed recently, you know, Labor's put forward that they're going to make the pill available over the counter. Um, I think in the upcoming three elections in Victoria, um, New South Wales and federally over the next six months, never has the women's um, vote and voice mattered more. And, you know, I don't think there's any one thing that has um, brought on that momentum. Um, It has been incremental um, nudges, if you like, of social change. And whilst, yes, there are radical aspects that take place, you know, like giving men parental leave, you know, sort of five years ago was radical... Um, uh, and, you know, unfortunately, we're still only at 5%. But they're the kind of legislative changes that can um, accelerate, uh, I guess, gender equity. And I think the, probably the most radical thing, um, which, you know, probably to this audience seems completely normal, we can do, is actually challenge this concept of gender equality and make it about men, you know? Um, so much of the focus in the conversation is about how we need to fix women and change women and, you know, better women. Let's teach them how to be on boards and, um, you know, so much investment in that training. And, I, you know, our big focus is actually on leaders as well. You know, I wrote r- just this week on, um, you know, when you analyse the last four sexual harassment surveys, ...into the prevalence of it in Australia. I mean, there have been four. Um, And yet this latest one says that it's actually increased um, in prevalence. One of the things that struck me is that 40% of experiences of sexual harassment... um, ...were witnessed by a bystander. You know, by a third party. So... Actually, we're looking, sometimes you just have to look at the data differently um, and stop focusing. Like, let's stop asking women to share their experiences. We all know the experiences and the impact that it has on women. Let's change the conversation and let's actually ask perpetrators, you know, what's going on for them. Let's ask bystanders, which is probably one of my favourite questions at the moment. You've seen this. You have you have seen this. Um, What got in the way of you speaking up? And let's unpack the fear from a different lens and drive a different conversation from change perspective.
1: It's just instead of raising awareness, ending the stigma, it's actually just flipping the conversation totally. Yeah, it's really interesting. And in in the corporate world, what do you think, what kind of radical action do you think is required, Dale?
2: Well, I think there is a movement now we need to leverage on that. But another radical thought I'll leave you with is that in some societies – there isn't a gender view that, you know, people, um, you know, so we are socialised to be, you know, you know, male or female or um, gender stereotyped. So we could have a fluid more people and, you know, transgender people um, and it is a function of actually Western civilisation. So why don't we just go to people?
1: it's kind of like in a language, like when you think of a Western language it's like French, Italian, it's kind of, it's got the male and the female, but not all languages, not so, all societies are like that. Absolutely. Um, and Div, what do you think, I mean, in your work challenging diversity in the corporate world, what, I mean, you're obviously starting the work, but what do you think is going to help end that work, get us to the point that we need to be at? Uh,
4: well, I'm a strong believer in uh, measurements, so what you can measure Gets done, Um, and I come. I'm South African-born and raised, uh, so we worked through the apartheid era, and then you know, free from apartheid. So affirmative action is what changed the dialogue, uh, because while we don't have um, gender discrimination really legislated clearly, uh, it is so. So it is pervasive, and it's um, it's ingrained in our DNA in Australia, um, and despite us being 51% um, gender in terms of female, we still don't get it. And the voices that rise up still don't make the changes fast enough that we need, that you articulated. Um, So I'm a strong believer in legislating um, the affirmative action or quotas. um, So create the urgency that's needed. Um, Like just um, this week, the UK has um, put forward that companies will disclose their ethnic... um, pay gap and I was asked by the SBS whether they think Australia will get there. And I'm like, really? We're just onto the gender pay gap. <laughs> uh, do you really think that we're going to disclose ethnic pay gap? That's ridiculous. We're so conservative. Uh, it's because there's no there's no urgency from Australia to change. And despite South Africa's problems and corruption and all of those sorts of things, um, the urgency to Put forward affirmative action candidates and and reorientate organizations and leaders to be inclusive of black leaders in their organizations where they have not had them forever in their in their midst uh, was the the drastic change that we needed um, and I think if it can be done in South Africa where it can be done for for all people and I do think not to steal your thunder, but I do think we have to redress our historical past, I think Australia is, you know, like the auntie who just doesn't talk about the bad stories Um, and I think we need to be the other auntie that just blabs it all out and just talks about it and just does reconciliation properly and when we do that then we're really honest about our true biases the most difficult thing for me as a migrant coming into Australia was the unsaid discrimination I was much more comfortable with the over discrimination I was like give me South Africa back you're black you're Indian you're colored and you're white and you're discriminated according to race. I know that, I can navigate that, it's clear. Here, it's such an undercurrent that it's, sometimes it's so internalised that you think, is it in my head? Am I not progressing because of me? Or is it because there's a leader bias, organisational bias, or what's going on? So I think unless we can really readdress um, what we do to children on Nauru, what we've done to our first people, what we do to migrants then we can really start to back the affirmative action that we need and i feel that that is the change that we it's it's not rocket science it's really clear um but i think we just don't have the people um in australia in Parliament that actually will lead this that courageously. Sense of urgency, yeah. yeah, yeah. Wouldn't yeah. I just don't think there's a sense of urgency, unfortunately.
1: So Lydia, how do we make Australia become the auntie that blabs
0: it all out? Like how
1: <laughs> how what, I mean what, what's your idea for that
0: happening? Well yesterday I announced our treaty um, policy platform and that was um, a Truth Reconciliation and Justice Commission, which is what South Africa have done and it and i I um, think that this country has a mental health problem, and you know to to address a mental health problem, you need to first know that there's a problem, and this country is de- in denial so um, a truth reconciliation and justice commission will help this country understand actually you know there is a problem, and we need to start telling the truth and going through a healing process to be able to go forward um, and our people need to heal. I mean, once that once that um, truth-telling happens, then we'll be able to to start to heal and you'll see, you know, the gap closing and all these, you know, fandangle uh, programs that are out there and millions of dollars being poured into that actually don't work because we're not dealing with the underlying issue and that is this country has to deal with the true history. So Too much of yeah. a stopgap
1: measures, yeah. And um, one last cue because I'm conscious, Lydia, that you have... Another um, appointment to get to, election time, very busy. So, last question. Um, T Magazine editor and author of A Little Life, Hanye Nagihara, tells young women to say nothing when negotiating a, a salary or a promotion. She said, When an employer makes an offer, you should state your counter. They might say, Well, we can't do that. Then you just don't say anything at all. It's very hard to do. It took me years to learn but people are very uncomfortable with silence and whoever breaks it first loses. It's good to go in knowing exactly what you're willing to compromise on and then be quiet because I think women, we start saying, oh, I'm so sorry, but oh, I'd really like this amount or this title. Don't ever apologise or explain why, she says. So finally, as women at the peak of your respective professions, what advice do you have for those starting out around becoming a leader today? I mean... How do you do it? What's the, what's the path? What's your best bit of advice, best pearl of wisdom?
2: Well, being a troublemaker myself, when I got kicked out of nursing... <laughs> um, uh, ..well, I can't even... I will tell you, 1979. Um, 25 years later, I went back as the CEO of the Royal Women's Hospital... Um, ..and it was built on the old nurse's home where I got kicked out of. Oh, so, there was a beautiful karma about that. <laughs> So, the first thing I say to young people is um, treat failure as your friend and learn from your mistakes. Um, And, yes, it's good um, in negotiating your wage to be silent, but don't be silent in your workplace. Um, The other thing I say to young people is um, remember where you come from. Your heritage is really, really important. Um, And uh, also um, be true to yourself. ...and your values and work in an area that you're passionate about... ...and you'll, you know, have a happy life if you do that. Are that
1: you, Prue?
3: Look, I think it comes back to um, that piece on grace. I think when uh, you need to speak up, speak up with grace. Um, uh, and if you use grace in your leadership style... ...which means actually listening to understand, not just to respond... Um, looking for the potential in other individuals, um, then it does instil in yourself a confidence of, you know, less regrets as well. Um, But also an inner confidence uh, to speak up, particularly about matters um, of justice or injustice that are important to you. Um, So get your compass right. Know which direction you want to point that compass in. Um, uh, And um, move forward
4: with grace. Um, My kid taught me this. She said, Dr. Zeus says, be yourself because everyone else is taken. Uh, I think that's a good one. Um, uh, Just on terms of salary negotiation, I'd say you've got to walk in there knowing your worth and your value. Uh, Then you can negotiate. But if you're going in there to take something in your hand that's given to you uh, and take it without speaking, then you don't know your worth. So I think you need to know your worth before you step in there and value your skills, uh, not where your position is at, value what you bring. So that's on the salary. Uh, In terms of advice uh, to people, I I give four tips and I say um, pretty much what you said in terms of know where you're going. So have a goal and have a clear goal in mind. and progress that goal. So a lot of uh, women that we work with actually have an aspiration or a goal, but they just haven't progressed it. They're like, "When last have you worked at moving that goal? Oh, it's been I've been so busy. It's been 12 months. I haven't done anything." Um, so what gets movement and mobility is individuals taking agency, moving a goal. This is the second thing, and I'd say the third thing is. Um, Branding and profile. And that was just such a word that I learned in Australia. And I was like, what, what is that, branding? And how do I do that? Um, and it's very much being authentically you, uh, but also creating key messages and key stories that connect with your individual identity. Um, and branding... This kid is so cute. He's so distracting. Gosh! <laughs> That's so <my> distracting. <laughs> and I just want to cuddle him a little. But anyway, um, branding... Is really important, and I, I think you need to know how to do that well and authentically. Uh, and the fourth thing I'd say, in terms of going back to moving your goal, is you need to find um, an advocate and a sponsor. And, right. I, and I don't think it is a mentor, people confuse that. Um, a mentor is someone who gives you sort of reflective advice now it's just and again. Ideas. It's not, yeah, yeah, it's not, you need a person with agency for you. So you need to have influence with that person to really share with them clearly what, where you want to go, what you want to do, who you are, and get them to know you authentically so that they can influence others on your behalf and then they become the advocate for you. So when you are not in the room, they speak and are your advocate and can open doors. And then you get mobility. Then you get movement. And I think those four things are so important. And we've watched... 120 women, culturally diverse women move through our program just on those four principles and the outcomes have been stellar because it's movement and continuity. And I think that's so important because we often have a lot of aspiration but just don't give ourselves the time and find the right person to open
1: the door. So, that's oh, it. you have been an amazing advocate. What about you, Lydia?
0: Um, I think be prepared to make a lot of mistakes. I mean, I left school at 14 because my school was too racist. I was pregnant at 17 and breastfeeding on my 18th birthday and never thought I'd be sitting here as a politician. So I've made lots of mistakes and I just kept going. And I think, um, you know, no matter what you do in your life and what your education level is, as long as you stand true to what you're about and and you stand up against injustice against others and against our environment then um you know that's staying true to yourself so that's what i say to young people i mean it's a different audience and it's i have a different upbringing and a different um experience but i think yeah just you're going to make mistakes and people are going to try and bring you down but you just got to keep going and and never forget where you come from, and where you're going, and why you're doing it.
1: We probably have time for one or two questions if anyone's a keen bean to ask a question about erudite panel this evening. But don't feel pressure to ask a question if you don't want to. Oh, there's a question over here. It's for the recording.
5: Yeah, no worries. <laughs> um, I was wondering. So there's obviously a lot of old white men represented in government, and I just checked Malcolm Turnbull's Wikipedia page and it says he was a barrister, then a businessman, then a politician. Are there women like you for women representing that in politics after you've made your career as successful, powerful women?
3: Is that, are we going to go into politics?
5: <laughs> sort of, <laughs> or like... Will are you we be thinking about yeah, it? <laughs> like, I'm sure there's... Uh, I hope there's millions of powerful women like you. But if if Lydia is saying that there isn't that representation in government, is there a possibility for women like you to be that representation?
0: Yeah, uh, most of uh, the MPs in the Victorian Parliament have a law degree, and I've often said to my colleagues what am I doing here? Everyone's got a bloody law degree except for me. I'm just, you know, I have a degree in life. Um, And when they talk about family violence, well, I've experienced. When they talk about early school leavers, I've experienced. So I just think we need more, and I'm not, you know, putting lawyers down, but we just need more everyday people in parliament with life experiences to stand up for the people, you know, for what they know and the experience that they've had to be able to change. I mean, we can't read everything in a book and learn everything at a university. We've actually got to go out there and live the real life. So, when I stand up for public housing, it's because I've lived in it. It saved my life, you know. I think we just need more people with lived experience in Parliament to actually, when they say it, they actually mean it and know it because they've lived it.
1: That's what democracy is meant to be about, isn't it? Yeah. Um, you, I have
2: considered going um, into politics, however... It doesn't seem very enticing these
1: days, uh, does it?
2: But I think there is great power, and you know, I talk about public health um, leadership, and so I have, through my roles, been able to change the law. Um, abortion law reform, assisted um, dying... Um, I've been able to uh, assist with reproduction technology, some crazy stories there. So it's about stepping out, you know, whether you're in Parliament or not, it's about making sure you're using, again, your power to um, improve things. And you can do that within the Parliament or in when you've got responsible um, roles, it doesn't matter what level, you can change the world.
1: Working with the system. Yeah. Is there anyone else who'd like to... Oh, yes. Can I just Leighton add to that, oh, you yeah. also
0: need an acting degree to to display you know (laughs) it's unbelievable the acting that goes on
5: first of all thank you for all the words that you just said it's really it's good to be part of this moment of history where we can all share this moment that my mom didn't have it for example it was just maybe a small talk in a corner so it's just really good to be part of this Um, I think that what is happening right now is that we are changing the education. We are all being educated through you uh, about how to empower ourselves. So I think that that's, that's very important. I also believe that, unfortunately, sometimes women are also the worst enemy of women. So that's something really sad. Uh, so my question would be, what would you like to, or what would you be able to do to change that, Education. What would you teach your daughter, your friend, your coworker, as a woman, also as a man, of course, about how to change this education? What would be the lesson that we today, maybe we could spread to people that we know and we are just like, today we've been through this conversation and this is the lesson that I want to share with you, for you to keep on sharing so we can make this the actual change. And one day we just are a million people here and just yeah, sharing that lesson. Thank you.
2: So, I have two daughters and um, as I was bringing them up, I was running the women's hospital and always thought they were my compass. What sort of um, health service do, you know, my girls need um, and, th- and advocated for those. And um, I also curated a book, a women's health book, uh, which talks about um, women's health. And it's also that health information is available um, on the internet and particularly in areas like menopause, um, which wasn't spoken about. Um, it's the number one hit in the world for information, transparent information. So, the point there, here is that, again, you have to be active. You know, my girls are very advanced, way advanced than some of their peers. And they get their information from, um, you know, each other. And so, the more that young people can be informed about their sexual health and their sexual orientation, etc. cetera. Um, so, it's about being involved and active. I think... Um ...gender
3: equality is a little bit like, you know, those magic eye books... ...and you can stare at it and miss it for a long period of time... ...but once you see it, you can't unsee it. Um, And I think that's your opportunity to start new conversations... ...is to keep on looking for it, to keep your eyes wide open... Um, ...and you do start seeing it everywhere. And I I give a, you know, a small example in our little primary school... ...where um, two of my kids are ash... and my daughter, um, you know, plays on the side of the, the oval and, um, you know, there's the meanness and all the, you know, what it gets classified as typical bitchiness, really, amongst little girls or, you know, young girls at school. And I started asking questions because I know that the boys play on the oval and they dominate the oval. And you start to see this entitlement, you know, in our primary schools. So with a little bit of coaching, um, my daughter and a couple of other little girls and my son actually uh, put forward a proposal to the school around Share the Grass. Um, And it's really interesting now, you know, they got got the proposal up and um, the kids all actually understand it. And just recently, you know, this was um, sort of back in February that we did this. Just really recently, uh, the grade three girls decided they wanted to start playing football on the Oval. And some of the grade three boys started saying, oh, but they're not as good, you know. No, um, they can't play footy with us, you know, and all the rest of it. And two of the other mothers gave me the feedback that my son spoke up and said, no, but that's because we haven't shared the grass with them for the past four years. Um, And, you know, we need to actually share the grass. And now I hear my five-year-old who starts school (laughs) next year going... Sharing the grass is good, Mum, isn't it? You know, and so you can actually really inspire and change generations through really little things um, and opportunities that come your way. It's a different sharing the grass than I was used to at school. <laughs> <laughs> oh
5: God. There's a story in there. There's a story yes. in there. There's...
4: i just say, gosh, there's a story in there that I want to hear so badly, but anyway. <laughs> um, I'd say um, just for our future generations, just be inclusive. It's so easy to be inclusive. And uh, I often talk to my kids about little micro-inclusions, like just making eye contact, just um, listening to people with a foreign accent that actually, or a foreign name that might be hard to pronounce, but you try. Um, And I think those little micro-inclusions make our society a better place and that leaks into every relationship, business relationship or social relationship. Um, And and my daughter also is challenging the status quo because... um, I think the other thing that young people can do is actually look at the system that has been already in place and challenge that. Uh, So she's been bullied by, she's in year uh, five, she's been bullied by seven girls who are the linchpin girls uh, in that year five. Um, And the school, so I of course was there on the double, big tiger mum talking about it. Um, And the response from the school was to give my daughter counselling and I said, I'm sorry, I just don't understand that. how that works. I've got a seven-on-one altercation and you're asking for my daughter every two weeks to sit with a counsellor. Should we not be tackling those seven bullies? And I think that breaking of the system and challenging the system consistently and for my daughter not to feel like she's a victim and shrinking back to find her voice and say, no, actually I'm not going to sit through 30 minutes of counselling and introspect on what? How could I have coped better in that situation? What was I going to do next? Yeah, or try this, try that. And we were like, no, we're not doing that. We're doing this. We're focusing on the seven girls who were bullied. Change that, change the system. So I think my message to younger people of a a more inclusive society starts with little things and small things and actually challenging our thinking and the way institutions have really ingrained that exclusion uh, to break that and bring it out into the open um, is what I'd say. We all need to do. It's all our responsibilities
0: in every way. Um, that's that. I think Lydia. <laughs> um, Before you dash. <laughs> so um, thought a thought. Women in our communi- Thought woman in our community. Everyone knows what a thought woman is going to be like. So um, you know, we we're all strong. We're all um, we all speak our mind, and we all will stand up. ...at any time against injustice. Me walking out at the Uluru meeting... ...that was standing up against an injustice... ...because people didn't understand what the hell was being said. So we stood up. And um, when my, my, I've got two daughters and two granddaughters. One turned 18 two days ago... ...and my youngest is 10... ...and I've got a three and five year old granddaughter. Um, to my, with my 27 year, old, 27 year old son, not my 18 year old daughter... Thank goodness, not yet. <laughs> she knows she's not going to make the same mistake. She's promised. Um, and, yeah, we, look, we, we are every woman in our family, no matter how young or how old, is so strong and so resilient that we'll just continue breeding strong black thought women. Um, and my youngest sister, she's... Um, you know, in in the year 2000 when a million people walked over the bridge in the name of reconciliation and we couldn't reconcile because the country's too racist, um, we ended up having dinner at John Howard's house and my sister was my daughter's age then, 10, and she said to John, like, on the bus, my mum and I said to her, you can't say anything to John Howard, just behave yourself do the right thing, got to be respectful, you know. We've, mum's on the Reconciliation Council and it's all about respect and rah rah Anyway, the first thing my sister said to John Howard was, why won't you say sorry? Why? <laughs> and she was 10 and now she's a founder of the Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance. So it's something that is just ingrained in us and will never be any different, but we want to raise, you know, strong women and strong men to, to support our women and we'll continue to do that. Um, and despite all the, you know, the things that, that come at us every single day and all the, um, you know, terrible rates against our people in terms of incarceration and um, removal of children, you know, we're, we're doubly um, fighting against all these injustices and I think it's the strong black women that'll um, see us through the day.
1: Thank you Lydia. Thank you you, ladies for your expert and excellent insights. We're all very lucky to have heard from you this evening. And thank you everyone for coming. Um, We'd love to see you at our next Collectivity Talks at M Pavilion, which is in January, um, on the design of future workplaces with techne, architecture and interior design. But for now, thank you all for coming. Have an excellent night. And I hope that you can take these insights into your lives. And as you said, um, make change for our generation and, and the ones to come. So thank you, everyone.
0: You are listening to an Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.